Hello, and welcome to Black Marriage Therapy, BMT for short. Here we become students of marriage in order to create healthy, long-lasting relationships. I'm your host, Kristen Smith, and in today's episode, we discuss invisible trauma with our special guest, Kara Cadeau. There are moments in our lives that stick with us for a lifetime. Some of these moments, however, carry wounds so deep that we bury them, pretending they never existed until someone accidentally touches it. Then what? A reaction happens, usually a big one, leaving our partners confused, wondering what triggered us to respond that way. These wounds, these traumas, represent experiences that have deeply affected us, be it a single event or a series of negative relational experiences over time. When left unaddressed, these invisible traumas can cast a long shadow over our lives and more specifically, our marriages. In this episode, we are privileged to have an expert guide us through the sensitive topic. Joining us is Kara Cadeau, a licensed clinical social worker and the co-founder of Authentic Marriages, a Christian marriage ministry she runs alongside her husband, Dr. Jared Cadeau. Their mission is to promote emotionally and spiritually healthy marriages in the Black and Brown communities across the globe. Together, we'll unravel the layers of invisible trauma, exploring how it manifests in our lives and influences the dynamics of our marriages. If you have been enjoying the content, please follow us on Instagram at Black Marriage Therapy, rate us on your podcast platform, and share your favorite episode with a friend. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Black Marriage Therapy. I'm so excited to have you guys uh, joining us for this episode. We are joined by the amazing Kara Kadu, who is a licensed clinical social worker, and she is here to join us and to guide us as an expert through the topic of invisible trauma. We're going to be talking about trauma a little bit, but also specifically invisible trauma. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Kara Kadu. And she's, I'm going to give her a chance to uh, introduce herself. Thank you. So good to be here. I am a licensed clinical social worker that specializes in working with adults who have trauma as well as couples and new moms. And so I have been in private practice for a couple of years now and a therapist for going on, I think it's like seven, eight years. I'm losing count now. Wow. <laughs> I'm losing count now. Yeah. About seven or eight years. Wow. And you're here now. Yes. Like you have a whole organization, authentic marriages. I definitely was stalking your website. It is amazing and beautiful what you guys are doing. You have retreats and, and coaching and like intensives and workshops and all these things. It's so amazing. It's so beautiful. You're like goals to me right now. <laughs> 
But thank you for sharing uh, uh, sharing that with us and giving us some background on who you are and, you know, your passion and how you got here. And I know in our previous conversation, you talked about how specifically you really love to discuss trauma. And that's why we have you here as an expert to really walk us through this this topic that I think um, it's a big topic. So one thing that I love is that I think people are curious now about trauma and about their mental health and things like that. But sometimes we may swing the pendulum all the way on the other side where it's a kind of a buzzword. We use it for everything like that's trauma and that's trauma. So if we can to just really start the conversation on trauma, if you can really help us to understand what trauma really is. Yes. So I like um, Kobe Campbell, who is a trauma therapist as well. I like her definition of trauma. She recently came out with a book called Why Am I Like This? And Mm. it's a great resource for anybody to read on like, why am I the way I am? (laughs) And it has so much information about trauma. And she defined trauma as basically anything bad that has happened to you, but it has left a long lasting negative impact on your spiritual, mental, emotional, relational, financial, and social well-being, right? Mm -hmm. Like it did leave a, a, a big impact on my life. And then the little traumas, That's where I kind of think of as like the more invisible traumas or traumas that we don't even think about as traumas. Mm. So they could be as small as, you know, getting into constant arguments with your parents or I was supposed to have a nurturing parent, but instead I had a critical parent. So the only time that I got praised was when I performed, when I did well. So now in my adult life, I associate love or I associate acceptance with doing good, with getting job well done. So if I don't hear job well done from my boss or from my partner, then it means I've failed, you know? And so those are sort of like little ways that something really, what we might think of as small, like having a critical parent or having a parent that's not very nurturing, and we might not even consider it to be trauma, But it's like, but it does impact, it does impact the way we show up. And one of the things that I think of when I think of invisible trauma is almost like things that should have happened in our lives, but it didn't happen, Mm -hmm. right? An example would be like, I should have had two parents in a loving home, in a nurturing environment. That is something I should have had. And the absence of that is like the invisible trauma, right? Because it's not necessarily something that happened right? We can't even quantify it as an incident. We can't even, if we did a timeline, we can't say, okay, on October 8th, 2012, this happened to you, right? So it's almost like not really quantifiable to Mm -hmm. the naked eye, but it's really something that, you know, for many people, they feel like something's missing. Mm. I feel like you're like reading my journal right now. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, close my journal. What are you talking about? Um, And I think you really explained it. And I think I've heard it like that. So it's like the what I'm hearing you say is like the big T trauma. We we commonly know them, like you said, sexual trauma and stuff like that. And then those invisible ones are kind of the ones that um, it's the things that for me, I don't even recognize as impactful to me because it may be invisible from other people like oh that's not a trauma but also for the people who have experienced it I'm like do I even realize that because you know even growing up maybe like poor 
you know, I don't know. I don't think that's on the list of traumas, but I right very impactful. <laughs> it's definitely very, very impactful. Yes. Yeah. Um, a follow up question I have to that then is why is it that certain things impact people, but then some people and then don't impact another person? So, for example, when I was a child, I got hit by a car. It was like a love tap, you know, but it's something that did happen to me, but it had no impact on me whatsoever. It's a memory. I remember what happened. I remember, you know, all the conversations behind it, but it, it just never impacted me, you know, after that. But for somebody else, they're terrified of cars or, and that's like the dramatic version of it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm curious as to why is it different, you know, if with situations and things like that. I think that kind of goes back to the makeup of how we are, our DNA, the things that have been passed on to us. So some people, for example, are more predisposed to anxiety because anxiety runs in their family, just like how you could be predisposed to diabetes because diabetes runs in your family or hypertension runs in your family. It means now that your risk factors are greater, even if you have the same lifestyle of someone else who does not have that predisposition. Mm. And I don't think that we ever consider that we have like mental health predispositions. Yeah. Like we are, some of us are more predisposed to depression, more predisposed to anxiety, more even predisposed to addiction. And even when you think of like, there's an example of like, when you see twins growing up in the same house and they have like very different outcomes in life or very different personalities or very different things that bother them right even though they might be in the same receiving what looks like receiving the same thing you know and a lot of us could receive the same thing but it doesn't necessarily mean we're processing it the same way okay that make that makes a lot of sense so if i am a person i'm listening to this podcast and you know you're talking about events or even relational experiences that's having impacts on your life what are some signs that i can say that I can look at because if they're listening to a person like me it's hard for me to kind of think about what are things that i do or patterns that i have or behaviors or habits that would make me say like, maybe that thing that happened is impacting me. You know, what signs would you say um, to look out for? That's a really, really great question, because I think you're right when you say that most people do not know that they are impacted. I would say the vast majority of us Mm -hmm. (laughs) do not, even when you have experienced major trauma, many people minimize the effects or the impact that it actually has on their life. And they're like, Mm -hmm. oh, that happened 27 years ago that doesn't bother me anymore you know Mm -hmm. and I think what we have to look at is what you said like the patterns in our lives and we have to start paying attention because different people are going to have different patterns so a Mm -hmm. common pattern that is relatively I would say kind of like on the safe side would be like people pleasing right people pleasing is an accommodation that Mm -hmm. we make Because there is something inside of us that is saying, if I do not people please, if I do not say yes, if I do, you're the person that always says yes, you're the person that never has an opinion, you you go with the flow, you're easy to get along with, because what if you don't do that? And that's very seductive because it's not like it's a pattern that's like dysfunctional, like as in like you're addicted to drugs, Mm -hmm. but things like people pleasing is so seductive and rewarded in our society that you may not even notice that as a trauma response. You may not notice that as that's something that I do to compensate for the 
for the thing that's inside of me that's feeling insecure, that's mm. feeling like I'm not good enough, that's mm. feeling some type of like negative thought. And that's the other thing about trauma, whether it's a big T trauma or a little T trauma, whether it's an obvious thing or it's invisible, it always leaves you with a negative thought about you. And to find that negative thought or to discover that negative thought does require some introspection, but it will it will likely be the thing that's hard to say out loud. Like you might think it in your head, but when you try to say it to another person, it, it might cause you to choke up or choke on your words because it's really hard to say, I'm not good enough to another person and not have that like shudder in your body. You know, and not have that like impact to be like, that was really hard to say out loud to another human, right? Mm -hmm. And that's how you know that's the negative belief or the negative cognition that you developed from, you know, big or little traumas. And that's why I say it, it doesn't matter necessarily the size of the trauma as opposed to the, to the impact of the negative belief. Because the negative belief wow. is what is huge. Yeah. Because if you are walking around with a core part of you feeling not good enough, then you're going to figure out, and everybody does this, we figure out ways to compensate for that deficit. That's just a natural human response that will happen, right? We're going to figure out, um, we're creative beings, we're smart, we're you know gifted and talented in so many ways. So we're going to find a way to compensate for that. And so people pleasing is an example of how someone might compensate for not feeling good enough or perfectionism. Another thing that's rewarded, especially in the workplace, you have somebody who's a perfectionist on your team, you know, they're going to work, you know, they're going to produce some of the best, you know, group projects, all of those things. They're going to be the one that shows up because they're like, this has to be on point. And you want them on your team. And so it's they're going to be rewarded with good grades. Perfectionists are rewarded with praise. They're rewarded with sometimes more work. Um, but, you know, perfectionism is another example of like, this is something that I am doing to compensate for something else. Wow. I think you explained that very, very well. Um, and I'm actually like, I'm taking a moment now because I'm like thinking about it as you're speaking for myself. And I'm pretty sure that others listening to this as well is like, wait, hold on. The way she just explained that was way too good because now I'm thinking of those things with my own mind. And again, my journal was way open in this episode because you mentioned <laughs> perfectionism. That's definitely something that I've struggled with, something that I've talked about openly on the podcast. Um, but then also for me, I tied that to hyper independence as well. But it's just like you saying that this thing that you're missing and like you trying to make up for it. And I just I didn't notice it that way. And I just think that's a beautiful way of explaining it, because like, you know, I didn't get this affirmation from my my mother or like I had this, you know, this was kind of our our relationship. This is how our relationship has always been. I've literally said in my mind, OK, because I didn't get this, mm -hmm. I will never let that happen by compensating with this. I've said those words in my mind. And I was like eight years old and I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, I never saw it that way. That's exactly what I'm doing. 
I'm like, this happened. I never want to feel that feeling again. I don't want to experience that pain or, you know, have that experience. So I'm just going to be perfect. Perfect. I'm going to be hyper independent. I'm going to build up walls. I'm not going to trust people, you know, and what I've noticed, and this is what we want to continue to talk about is that this has impacted my marriage in Mm -hmm. so many different ways. And it took, we've been married um, 11 years. We've known each other 14 years. We've been married 11 years. And only I would say in the past three or four years, I would say that I've really started to highlight, like, like you mentioned, the patterns, the habits. Why do these things keep coming up over and over and over again? And it's really impacted our marriage, you know? And I, I want to talk about that a little bit, how these um, traumas and specifically coming down to those invisible traumas, how it really impacts marriage and relationship. And we can start like with talking about communication because I think communication is like usually the top one. Yeah. Like, how would, you know, and we can use that example with somebody struggling with perfectionism. Like how would that show up in a relationship like with communication? Yeah. Um, so I think perf- perfectionism is a really great example because a lot of high achievers struggle with perfectionism, which was, which is part of what makes them high achievers to begin with. Right. So it's like, I am a high achiever because I have to do well. I have to perform. I have to be perfect. There's no room for error. There's no room for anything else. I think mm-hmm. one of the classic ways this can show up is the fear of failure. Cause that's part of what perfectionism is rooted in. It's like, I can't fail, right? I cannot, there's no margin for error. So in the world of normal, right? In the world of being a human being, we should have a lot of room for error. We should have a lot of margin for grace, for error, especially in relationships, right? Grace, we need grace for ourselves, grace for our partner. We need to know that we are human. We we, we will make mistakes. Like that is the nature of being human, in a perfectionist mm-hmm. world, there's no room for mistakes, mm-hmm. right? Like, I don't get to be human. I don't get to relax like those other people there, you know, who, who, who are who are seemingly enjoying life, right? Like, yeah. I don't get to do that. I don't have permission to do that. And sometimes it might be likely that you might be married to a partner who is in the range of normal, right? <laughs> and if they are sitting in the range of normal where things are they live in the space where this is good enough and by your standards, this is unacceptable, mm. right? That can inherently create natural conflict, right? Like that can inherently yeah. create things to argue over, triggers in your relationship, constant bickering over nonsense. Um, if you're not aware that you're a perfectionist, then you can then have too high of standards for your partner mm. that they didn't sign up for like they didn't necessarily sign up to be a perfectionist I hear this a lot with my couples you know sometimes the men come and say my wife is a perfectionist she needs everything to be perfect and you know I just feel like all of this pressure is placed on me to have like 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 there's no room for error margin for error or anything like that like I can't even relax in my own home Mm. like if I sit down it's a problem if I stand up it's a problem it's like everywhere I turn it's a problem and so you know and I hear that a lot with couples that there is the the person who might be more of a perfectionist tends to be a little bit more militant or a little bit Mm. more (laughs) you know rigid um, in expectations, and that naturally is going to create a tiff in your relationship or a yeah. push in your relationship that's going to be frustrating for both you 
as a perfectionist and your partner <laughs> who likely is not who likely yeah. is not uh a, and they they actually look at you as who, the person who is the perfectionist the partner looks at them as though you're preventing us from enjoying life like you're preventing us from you know being in this good you know happy safe place because of your your extreme or high standards right that's that's a very common dynamic that shows up in a lot a lot a lot of couples and again especially with couples where they're like high achieving professionals you know goal getters you know people who are you know very much ambitious there's usually one person in there has a perfectionist in that relationship. Um, and so it, it's, a, it's sort of like a package deal, right? It's sort of like, you know, you get all of this ambition and then you get perfection with it. For the person who is the perfectionist, part of what recognizing it is number one, because we can't change what we don't recognize, right? Like we're not, we're, if you're not aware of, of these dynamics, these patterns in your life, in your relationship, you're, you're not going to realize that maybe you are putting more stress on yourself than you need mm-hmm. to, therefore putting more stress on your partner, you know, maybe, you know, and so it's, it's, it's a double edged sword. And so I think the person who is the perfectionist, and I can speak as a perfectionist myself, is that we have to learn to relax, <laughs> you know, like we have to learn to relax and we have to kind of learn, learn to take the dial down. And I might do that in like little doses where an example would be to stretch your distress tolerance for something like, like mm-hmm. let's say dishes in the sink might be your trigger mm-hmm. to just be able to walk past it, right? Like to just walk past it and not say anything, to not comment as soon as you walk in the door, why is there you know, this big mess? You know, to just be like, I'm going to walk in and I'm not going to say anything for 10 minutes, right? Like this is like stretching your distress tolerance for you yeah. being able to tolerate what in your mind might feel like chaos, right? Like you're looking yeah. at a messy situation and it really does feel like chaos in your body. Yeah, I I love that. That's a very practical yeah. tip. It's um, my husband and I actually just, this just happened. <laughs> because he's washing his hands and he just takes his hands and he's dripping. And I'm like, why are you dripping? You know, I'm immediately triggered. And I'm like, just dry your hands or shake your hands, you know? And he's just like, uh, I don't think it's that big of a deal, but okay. You know, but the way you're explaining it, like just stretching your tolerance, that's a simple thing you can do in the moment, a day-to-day practice where it's like, that's a, a, a answer for the normal person. I would say, oh, that's something I can practice to get better. Okay. Don't freak out. <laughs> Um, just out of my curiosity, I really want to, um, go a little bit deeper as to how, um, how that impacts intimacy, Mm. right? So we're talking about, we can continue the example of the perfectionist. What is it doing to them on the inside and how is that impacting how they connect their intimacy with their spouse? Mm -hmm. Um, and I hope I'm asking that that's enough context for you to answer the question. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think that, so it, it starts with communication. Okay. Roads lead back to communication, right? Yeah. So it's like, if we are not communicating or connecting on an emotional level, then it's going to then impact our intimacy on a physical level. 
Mm -hmm. right? Because Mm -hmm. generally speaking, the closer I am to you, the more emotionally connected I am to you, the more that I feel seen by you, Mm. builds that inherent safety, builds an emotional safety in the relationship. And then the absence of that also Mm -hmm. then means that my relationship isn't as safe, right? Mm -hmm. And so I might be, and, and, and physical intimacy, sex, that's one of the most intimate sacred things that you could do with your partner one of the most vulnerable things that you can do with your partner and I think that we don't realize how much emotional intimacy and safety feeds into that Mm -hmm. you know because you can end up getting to a place where you're disconnected so it's like your mind is somewhere else your body is here and you're going through the emotions and your partner can feel that like they can feel when you're not present they can feel when you're not engaged mm-hmm. and then that doesn't feel fun for them and then it's like oh, okay and then it's like all of these things are happening and they're invisible because nobody's saying it out loud right mm-hmm. you're feeling one thing he's feeling something else And then it's like, nobody's really talking about what they're feeling or what they're thinking. And then you're just kind of like walking away with an experience that may not be what you imagine or what you pictured or or lackluster. So there's there's a, a common conflict cycle that I like to talk to my couples about, which is kind of like a pursuer withdrawal cycle. Like most couples, I would say about 70% of couples kind of fall into that bracket where you have one person that tends to be the one that's not afraid of conflict. We won't talk about this. I need to let you know, A, B, C, D, right? Let me know when you have time because I have time for it today, right? That's like the pursuer, right? (laughs) The pursuer is that person who is, you know, we need to deal with this right now, like yesterday. And then the withdrawer tends to be the person that is conflict avoidant, you know, there's no sense in like trying to dredge up these, de- you know, these details of these things. It's not going to be beneficial. Why do it to begin with? And so they tend to shy away from conflict, right? A lot of who is a pursuer who is a withdrawer, again, could depend on your family dynamics, your cultural background, your own trauma, your personality. There's a lot of things that might go into like why that might be your conflict style. Mm-hmm. So if you grew up in a home that was, you know, let's say very volatile or high conflict home, you could either be the person that repeats that pattern or you could be the person that avoids it like the plague. Right. Again, Mm. it just depends. Right. You could have two siblings in the same situation and then they responded differently in their relationships. Wow. Yeah. And we both came from the same home. We both came from, you know, this high conflict home. And one person is like, nope, I don't want any sign of conflict I run away from because that makes me feel unsafe. Mm. And then the other person is like, we're not going to run away from it because the presence of conflict makes me feel unsafe. Yeah. Right. So we have to deal with it. So yes. both people are doing what they're doing because they're feeling unsafe emotionally in that moment. So the motives are the same, even though the response is opposite to each other and different. So nobody is right. I like to tell people nobody's right. Nobody's wrong. As a pursuer myself, we feel that we're right. So, so it's like, I'm like, I know I'm right. So we're going to talk about this so I can show you how you're wrong. And so a lot of times the pursuer really does feel like they are the ones in the right. But so do the withdrawers because the withdrawers feel like I am in the right because you're about to like have a complete meltdown that's not going to lead to anything productive. And so I am going to protect this relationship by being the quiet, 
calm to the storm. I'm going to not say anything. I'm not going to ruffle any feathers. And it's likely that whatever a withdrawer does is what they did when they were a child. And whatever a pursuer does might be what they did when they were a child. So if a withdrawer was like, I just kind of like became the person that doesn't get into trouble, flies under the radar. Mm. I don't want to be noticed. Mm. I don't good or bad. I don't, I don't want, I don't want anybody to call my name. Mm. I don't want to answer a question in class. I don't want to, I don't want to have positive or negative um, attention, you know, that type of thing. And it shows up now in your marriage and it shows up in your relationship because now it's Mm. like, Oh, we had to deal with real stuff now. Right. So, so we can't run. And especially if you have a pursuer that's going to say what's on their mind, right? Because that's what the pursuer is going to do. Mm-hmm. They're more likely to be unfiltered, tell you the truth. You know, I don't like this because of X, Y, Z. And for the withdrawal, that is going to feed their own negative belief, right? So when the pursuer comes and says, you didn't put your shoe in the shoebox or whatever, right? Or you didn't put the dish in the dishwasher. And then it's like their little child within Mm. that has said for so long, I am not good enough, or I am a failure, or, you know, I I am to blame, whatever your, your belief system is, unbeknownst to you, you've triggered that. And you didn't even know that you triggered that because you just try and talk about the dish in the sink. Like, that's all I'm trying to talk about. I'm trying to talk about, <laughs> you know, anything else other than this dish in the sink that you left. But then it can turn into, and this is this is one of the things where I think like people sometimes um, don't realize the kind of inner workings and communication because again, it's not only what you are saying, it is what that person is now filtering through their own trauma, negative beliefs, all of those things. So you just gave a practical criticism and it may have been relatively benign from your heart. You didn't mean any, you know, ill intention. You're not trying to like tear the person down or do anything like that. But then they received it as I am bad. I am a failure. You're saying that I'm a terrible husband, that I'm not good enough, that I'm not measuring up which likely is what they tell themselves in the Mm -hmm. darkness of their minds. And you didn't say that, Mm -hmm. but that's what they received. And now I'm going to bed with that thought. Mm -hmm. So now that I'm going to bed with that thought that, that um, that's a real mood buster right there. Right. Like Mm -hmm. that's (laughs) for sure. like, Like, like we just had this like little tiff. And again, it's small on the surface, mm-hmm. right? If we're talking about addition to saying a shoe on the floor, clothes on the floor, those are very common, normal things that happen in everybody's marriage. And you just bringing that up can create such a big internal response in the other person that you don't see. You have like literally no idea. This is how your partner is walking away yeah. from that very benign interaction. You know, and and that's how I think like it can affect intimacy, because then if I'm walking away with this thought of you think I'm not good enough, you think I'm a failure, you think I'm not a good wife, a good husband, a good partner, like whatever it is, like, like 
that that's hard to then conjure you know intimacy you know in 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 some of those spaces right or the reverse can happen where in order for me to be intimate I need to disconnect from my mind and body Mm. right and so I'm not going to be emotionally Mm -hmm. intimate physically right like I'm not going to combine the two yeah like like it's just it's just a body on a body physical physical but I'm going to disconnect my mind from being present um so that I could just go through it so that I can feel something Mm -hmm. you know and so those are kind of like the ways I think and even trauma can can sexual trauma can cause a response like that as well where um people sometimes disconnect themselves in order to then assume a more performative role and it's almost like they are not real they may not even enjoy what they're doing or in order to go through it they're just like I can't feel I can't I can't be present, you know, in my um, mind and my body. And then your partner don't even know this. So no. that's the other thing that's happening. It's like the way you're explaining it. I just love how you're, the thing that stood out to me is the is that you're having interactions as a couple, but the way one person is receiving it, they're filtering it through their own personal experiences, their own belief systems, their traumas, and you just took it full circle. And this is what we're talking about, how, you know, those traumas, big T traumas or little T traumas can affect, directly impact your relationship. Maybe there's an argument that you guys are continuously having that you think is about the dishes, but it's really about that person feeling inadequate or that person feeling not worthy or that person, you know? So it's just something, especially for my listeners to to maybe look at, right? And speaking of that, if, you know, somebody who's listening, they are listening to us and they're like, okay, I I, I think there's something here. I, I, I'm recognizing what they're saying. Well, how would they start to even have the conversation about this, right? And then sometimes, um, especially if you dealt with trauma, you may be more resistant, Mm-hmm. So if they have a spouse who is resistant, um, a lot of our listeners are women, but we have a good amount of listeners who are men. And I, I appreciate that because I think men sometimes check out <laughs> when it yeah. comes to relationship podcasts. But, you know, I want to, you know, help them. Like, how do we start this conversation? Where do we go from here? Like, how do I approach it? Where is it a way where it's like mindful and, and gentle, <laughs> you know? Yes. And I, I think that first and foremost goes back to relationship, emotional safety. Okay. Right. Like you have, to, like, I would not even advise somebody to talk about their own trauma mm. if they're not a safe person, whether okay. it's your friend, your husband, your mother, you know, it doesn't matter, right? Like whoever you're speaking to about your trauma needs to be a safe person, like needs to be a person that can hold space for you, that mm. can allow you to feel your feelings, that can allow you to be seen that can allow you to express yourself. And a lot of times that's sometimes the hardest thing in a relationship Mm -hmm. is to have that emotional safety, right? Because sometimes what happens is that if, if I bring up something that hurts me or that bothers me, um, the other person can personalize it as in like, Oh, so it's like, you're saying now that, I am creating 
this big bad experience that you experience from that person over there and now I'm re-traumatizing you so then it's like now I'm triggered right like I'm triggered because now now you're triggering my failure complex right and so building emotional safety is like a real thing like I think like people don't take that for granted or just think like oh I love you you love me everything else will follow after right yeah. The truth is the more that you love someone is the more exposed you are to be hurt by them. Mm. And in a romantic relationship, you have the greatest capacity for your heart to be trampled on by your partner because you are literally exposed in a way that no one else has access to your heart. Yeah. That way, in the mm. way that they have access to. So you always are going to be mindful of like, as I am exposing my heart, to this other person are they safe like are they because not every partner is a safe partner Mm. not every relationship has two people who are emotionally mentally fit Mm. right yeah and so sometimes you may find yourself in a relationship where it 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 proves to you that it might be a, a, a repeat of your trauma. It might be a repeat of your childhood. It might be a, a repeat of things. And that that's very common mm. where we don't break generational cycles. We repeat them. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. if we're not breaking generational cycles and we're repeating those cycles, then it, it, it might mean that we're not with somebody who is safe. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think starting your relationship in a space where this type of communication and conversation is normal like Mm -hmm. us talking about trauma is a normal thing it is not a because really it comes with a lot of shame Mm -hmm. um a lot of people that's why we don't talk about it is because we feel a lot of shame we feel bad even for things that were done to you that's not your fault Mm -hmm. people feel shame for and so there's a lot of shame that trauma can invoke inside of you which is why you need that safety right? Because you really need that other person to see you and Mm -hmm. to see all of you and accept all of you and not reject you or not tell you something that's blamey or like, well, why did you put yourself in that situation? Or why did you stay so long in that relationship? You know, because that's very judgy and blamey. And then you're going to learn like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to keep all of this to myself now. Right. Yeah. And so I would say building safety, like testing your relationship, just like if you were testing a new friend, right? Like if you had a new friendship and you give them a little bit, you don't give them your all, all your cards on the first date, right? Like you give them a little bit, you see how they respond and then believe them, mm. right? Like believe their response, believe who they show you they are from their response, right? Mm. And if there is a case where you're in a relationship where you feel like, man, I we are not having the types of conversations or the depth of conversations that I would like us to have, then you have therapists who are trained to help you, right? Mm -hmm. Like you don't have to struggle alone. You don't have to wing it. I know for myself, like I didn't come from a family that was a good example to repeat. Mm. So many of us are truly breaking generational cycles, right? Yes. So we didn't have any examples, good Mm -hmm. examples. We learned what not to do, but we didn't necessarily learn what to do. (laughs) And so we're here in the middle but still believe that we should like, no, when no mm-hmm. one taught us, no one was a mentor, no one was a good example, but somehow I'm just supposed to know how to do marriage, how to do relationships and how to communicate in a way 
um, where we all feel seen and heard and loved and validated. And I, and I like to remind people that relationships are hard because it's hard. Like marriage is hard because it's hard. It's not mm-hmm. because something's wrong with you. It's not because your partner is defective. It's not because, you know, there's some melt. It's not because of your trauma. It's hard because it's hard. It's hard for even people who have quote unquote, no trauma, right? Like yeah. it's hard for everybody. Yeah. And so I think we didn't come out the womb like, having a degree in in psychology or social work or accounting or you know anything that we had to learn yeah right we had yeah, to go yeah. to school and even as therapists we have to take continuing education like we don't stop learning even when we get our degree many professions yeah. require continuing education but we don't even consider that we need to do that for our marriage that we need to I say take continuing education for our marriage and yes. make that normal. I think, you know, we we just think that it should come naturally because like you said, love, right? Love should make yes, us happy and make sure, yeah, make us want to talk to each other. And it's just like love actually makes those things harder sometimes. Um, <clears throat> but I love how you um wrap that up and explaining how you know you want to make sure you're in a safe place and how you can test that safe place. Um, and of course, seeking help. And there's no shame in seeking help. But to to wrap this up, um, I just want to ask one more questions about um, how we can support each other. Mm-hmm. Right. While maintaining our mental health. Right. So maybe there's a couple who's listening to this and they are in therapy or maybe one of them are in th- is in therapy, you know, or maybe they are really working at breaking that generational cycle right? You're in the midst of it and you don't want to lose yourself, especially if you're supporting someone. You want to protect yourself, guard your heart, guard your mind. You don't want to lose that love, but it is a process and it does take work and there is some pain and some stretching that happens. And when you're with your couple, you're directly impacted by that. So I just want to like, if you have any advice or tips, suggestions for those people who um, are supporting one another on their current journey of uh, working through that trauma and becoming a healthier, mentally healthier person. Yes, 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 yes. I think like making space for this to be a regular, normal conversation in your relationship, not for it to be like this taboo thing that we talk about once every five years. Okay. I think, especially if you're doing your individual work, let's say, because there are a lot of couples where one person is going for therapy because they really want to, um, you know, work on themselves. They want to learn and unlearn certain patterns that that they have. I love the idea of being able to come home and share, you know, what discoveries you made in therapy or what you're Mm -hmm. reading this book or you were journaling or praying or whatever the Lord revealed to you, you know, like creating spaces where you can like really share your revelation because the truth is is that we should always be learning about ourselves right like we should always be unpacking uncovering discovering if if we're trying right like if we're trying to do that and it doesn't even have to be with a therapist to do that right like Mm. you can still journal and even journaling is has a way of like evoking or unfolding things that you didn't know before you started putting your pen to your paper and then you read it back and you're like oh uh, okay, I didn't see all of this here. You know, sometimes I go back through my my journals from years ago, and I I am like, wow, like <laughs> I'm like I'm like looking at what I wrote, and I I am almost flabbergasted by some of the things that I wrote in there because 
that's somewhere that a lot of people are actually honest is in your journal. Mm-hmm. Like in your journal is some, some of the thoughts that you've never shared with people out loud. You've never shared it with yourself out loud. You've never really, um, it's almost like this like hidden part of you that gets exposed on people. That's why I'm like, when I look back, I'm like, Oh my God, <laughs> I wrote all of this down. Wow. Um, I didn't know I was so honest. Yeah, But that's an example of like doing some of the work on your own where you can start the self-discovery, you know, Mm. sometimes reading back your journals, you start to see patterns, you start Mm. to see trends, right? You start to note, that's how some people start to notice um, some of their trauma responses that are benign, right? So I think like being able to create a safe space in your relationship where you can start having these conversations. And as you're having this self-discovery, now you can talk to your partner about, okay, how does this, this impacts me this way, right? Right. Like my perfectionism causes me to be this overachiever. And I feel like I can't relax. And I feel like if I, you know, were to take a step back, it could have dire consequences and you're able to not share that with your partner who can like hear what you've been internally, probably invisibly processing for years. Mm. And now it's like, Oh, like now I could see, especially they could see a little bit of, they could kind of make a little bit of sense behind the crazy. Right. It yes. Can be like, oh, yes. Why you the way you, you know, like I remember the, the time when I discovered why addition to sink bothers me beyond mm. the fact that it was annoying was that I realized that it connected back to a sense of lack of control that I had when I was a child, because I grew up in a home that was very cluttered because mm. my mother mm. had a mental illness. One of the, the, um, what your symptoms was hoarding. Mm. it used to irk my nerves to death to come home and this is me as a teenager coming Mm. home and seeing a pile of like let's say tuna cans that is supposed to be in the garbage but stacked on the counter right and I felt like in that situation like I was the parent a 13 year old girl talking to her mother about leaving things basically garbage on the counter, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember mm-hmm. being that girl, but I also remember the root of that is not just the fact that I was in that situation, but I also had no escape. So mm-hmm. I had to remain in that household. <laughs> I had to endure for years this this yeah. dynamic that I had no control over. And mm-hmm. so I realized that even the dish in the sink was a deeper thing for me because it represented loss of control. It represented something that as a child that I just had to live with and endure. And so it was just more than the dish. And so I think like when I explained that to my husband of Mm. like why this bothers me or why even clutter around the house bothers me, that is not just because I'm anal (laughs) or type A, I am responsible for my triggers because they come from my trauma. I think he's responsible for respecting it and understanding it. Mm. But when you're able to do that work, (laughs) when you're able to do that work and you can share that with your partner, it gives them some insight. And like, like you said, like, oh, wait, okay, it's not crazy. It's just, this is what she's experiencing, um, which I love. And that's kind of another way to even come back and connect 
you know, yeah. even while you're exploring and figuring out these things about yourselves and letting your partner know, and they can then support that and love that and figure out how to, yes. yeah. And then you guys can connect, which, which is full circle. I love that. That's great. Um, uh, if you have, and I know you mentioned a book because we like to offer our listeners resources, um, whether it's books or podcasts or anything that you would uh, recommend to someone who, um, where just so for them to get started, you know, or things that you, you feel like is really great. Cause that book that you mentioned, I'm like, I gotta go find it immediately. Yes. <laughs> the book, Kobe's book and the podcast is really good. Okay. Because she writes and it's good, even though it's, um, the book is great for anybody. Why am I like this by Kobe Campbell and the podcast that she has is called the healing circle, I believe. And that's a really great podcast in terms of like, she talks about trauma. She also did most of the episodes with her husband. So it's a, even though it's about trauma, I even like to recommend it for my couples because the Mm -hmm. examples that they actually use, they use their own life, their own relationship, their own to make it practical. Mm -hmm. Some of the examples, even though it might, you know, we might be talking about individual trauma, you really get to hear how it can play out in a relationship context, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's a really, really great resource. I also like the book. um, What's it called? The Body Keeps the Score. Mm -hmm. That's a really good book by um, for trauma, to learn about trauma, to understand. And one of the things that I like about that book in particular, because the thesis of the book is why, how, even if you have trauma that you don't remember, your body remembers. Yes. So you don't have to cognitively remember trauma for your body to be then anxious or tense or hypervigilant or, you know, those types of things, feeling anxiety, but you're not thinking anything anxious, you know? And a lot of times that is because there's that forgotten trauma Mm -hmm. (laughs) that you might have had early, early on in your childhood that, that you don't have the memory for it but your body still remembers yeah that's a really good book to talk about how your body holds on to trauma and therefore somatic things can help so one of the things that i i anytime i'm working with trauma for my clients the one of the easiest things that you can do to help yourself is meditation and yoga Mm. you don't think that you're working on trauma but you are doing something with your body to release to release things that you don't even know is there. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times with trauma, we may end up disconnecting, putting on that shield, numbing out. We may end up, you know, creating things to protect ourselves. Everybody does that, some version of that. Yeah. And so, but we don't even know we're doing it. We, we're we not aware that that's why I don't trust people or I have this wall up when I do meet people or I'm guarded or I'm not going to share my secrets or I'm going to become, you know, hyper independent. Like a lot of times people don't know why they're doing that. Mm -hmm. And then when they do the yoga, because they become more in touch with their insides. So that's, that's just a byproduct of yoga, right? Like besides flexibility, strength and stretching Mm -hmm. and contorting yourself, the byproduct of doing all of those things is actually emotional connection with yourself and greater self-awareness. And, and that's one of the things that um, the book, My Body Keeps the Score, talks about is that doing things body-related can, even if you don't have a recollection of trauma, that can still significantly help you and help to heal you. Wow. And yeah, that's the first time I've ever heard of that. I really, I really like that. 
I'm gonna look it up. <laughs> like, how do you start learning how to do yoga? <laughs> um, I, I love that. Um, just as a closing for all of our listeners, um, it is very important on this podcast that we encourage people. So, um, and just let them know that you know you're not alone in this. That we are all working towards bettering our marriage. And so, if you have any just encouraging words to those of uh, to the to our listeners, um, now is this time. Yes. One, one thing I would say, healing is 1000% possible, Mm. right? Like, like healing. I have seen witness so many transformations right before my eyes. And I think that is one of the reasons why I absolutely love working with trauma is because when someone comes to therapy and they're ready to go into that dark tunnel of their life, I have just seen the most amazing, mind-blowing transformation that is possible. And so no matter how terrible the trauma is, regardless if you remember it or not, but now you experience kind of like the side effects of it or the the ways that you, patterns that you compensate, regardless of big or small, you have the capability of, of healing. And that's one of the things I don't know if everybody knows that. I don't know if people think, oh, not me, maybe her, but not me. (laughs) But no, everybody has the capacity to heal. And healing is one of the greatest, greatest gifts that you can actually give yourself. Mm -hmm. And because you deserve it, like you deserve to live a life free. You deserve to live a life unburdened. You deserve to live a life that's fulfilling, you know, and so don't let trauma block that. Yes. Or hold you back from really, really living. Yes, yes, yes. All right. I love that. Um, wow. Mm, I just, yeah, I want to sit with that for a second. I'm like, yes, that that's truly is encouraging that healing is possible. Healing is possible. Sometimes we feel like it's far away, but it is possible. It's for everyone. Yes. Um, that is Kara Kadu, everyone, uh, please let us know where we can find you and all the things that you have going on or, you know, something that you want to highlight that you're doing a project um, so that we can know how to connect with you. Yes. So my website is authenticmarriages.com. And my email is info at authenticmarriages.com. And I check and answer all my emails myself. And you can, you know, we have a couples coaching group that we start in the spring and in the fall of every year. And so our next couples coaching group will be in January. And we also have a celebration of love couples retreat. That is a destination retreat. And that retreat is going to be July um, 6th to 11th. And we haven't revealed yet where we're going. So, but if anybody wants to join the waiting list to get first dibs and the early bird discount, the waiting list crew will have that. And uh, so those are the two main things that we have coming up, the coaching group and the retreat. And I'm, of course, I am here for couples therapy, for those who are needing to find a, a couples therapist. And my husband and I, we also do coaching um, couples workshops as well throughout mm. throughout the year as well. And so those are kind of like really great resources that you can tap into and just just as a way to enhance your relationship, just as a way to continuing education for your relationship, you know, yes. finding good yes. workshops. And we always try to do 
you know, cover the topics of like forgiveness, communication, intimacy. Those are kind of like the core things that I think a lot of couples would find beneficial to mm -hmm. learn about. And so we'll be doing some of those in the new year as well. Okay, we are excited for all those things and everything that we've mentioned, all the resources, um, everything that Cara mentioned is going to be in our show notes. So you don't have to worry about writing it down. It's going to be available to you. I want to thank you all for tuning into this episode of Black Marriage Therapy. If you haven't yet, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Black Marriage Therapy. Thanks again for listening and talk to you soon.